Well, here we go. This is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true, and it is all that I need. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, and it starts with words, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. You know, that's the neat thing about doing a verse by verse. You know that he's talking about after six days, He's talking about six days ago, they had that confrontation with, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then later on in that chapter, it says that they were together and Jesus was telling them about he was going to die, but on the third day will be raised. And then Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And how quickly... Peter was used by the enemy and even though he wasn't saying anything bad Jesus had to say get behind me Satan you are a stumbling block to me you do not have in mind the things of God but the things of men he pretty much said to Peter you're being used of the enemy because you're saying things that I would love to hear I wish I wouldn't have to go through something like this but I have to don't be a stumbling block it just proves that the tempter didn't stop tempting Jesus back in the first part of Matthew. He kept nipping at his ankles the whole time of his ministry. And here was another one. It's so easy to want to be comfortable and happy. And what's on our mind are the things of men. And that's things of men. We want to have everything going our way. And sometimes, like Jesus going to the cross, um, that is not going to be an easy thing for him to do. And you'd much rather hear things like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. And isn't that life today? I don't want to hear about that we have to go through sufferings and trials. No, I want to be comfortable and happy. But the, the Lord knows what has to happen to achieve his purpose in Jesus' life and in our own life. And then, of course, you know, Jesus says that if you want to be a follower of mine, you have to, you must Every version that I looked up said you must deny yourself. Take up this life, take up this cross, and follow me. And so these were the these were the events that was happening, major events six days prior. And then Jesus said to them at the end of chapter 16, he said that some of you will not experience death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now we start Matthew 17, six days later, that's exactly what happens. Jesus is transformed into his kingdom body, and it was something to see. And so it says Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, they were led up on a high mountain. There he was, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light just then appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Can you even imagine what was going through the mind of Peter, James, and John? I think that visual is just almost uncomprehendable. But yet it was it was happening. And and you you wonder why why not all twelve? Why was it just Peter, James, and John? Why do later on in this chapter the nine are left behind to go and try to um, relieve this young man from this demon and they can't do it and that story. Why? Does Jesus pick favorites? Are Peter, James, and John the favorites? 
And I think you have a tendency to think that they were his favorites. Now, granted, we do read their names more, probably. But, but as I went to Romans chapter 2, verse 11, it's very, very clear, very black and white, that God does not show favoritism. What he does do, though, is cause us to experience what we need to experience so we're ready for the plan that he has for us. Don't you think that every day is a preparation for tomorrow? And he knows us so well, and he knows the experiences. I know for me personally, I had to go through the experiences that I experienced, the the ups and downs, the sufferings, the good times. I had to go through all of that to get me to the point where even today I can open to Matthew 17 and with all confidence teach this chapter. And and I think if we look back at our life, you can see God's hand preparing you for what his calling is on you. So I think Peter, James, and John, they needed this experience for whatever because they were going to be used in a way that someday they would look back and this experience would be there for affirmation or for whatever God wanted them to remember this for. The nine, they had to be, they had to go through what they had to go through to maybe kind of show them that they need a certain kind of faith. They need, there are different kinds of faith. So anyway, we'll move on, but I just didn't want anybody because I know our tendency is to think that they were the choice or they were the favorites, but no, God does not pick favorites. Well, then Peter in verse four, typical Peter said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. That, that sounds so perfect, doesn't it? Like, uh, I want to keep you. I want to keep Moses here, Elijah here, and you here just like that. And then when we can, we'll come back, and you'll always be here on this mountain, and I'll build these shelters for you. I mean, sometimes, um, Peter, but I think every one of us, sometimes we we talk before we think, or we, we just kind of say things like that, and we don't really think it through. And... That's just what Peter happened. I mean, I'm sure it was just almost an unbelievable sight that out of his mouth came these words. But then while he was still speaking, and that's something he was just going on and on, rattling away probably about building these shelters. But while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Do you remember when that was said before? When when God the Father spoke out loud about his son in those almost every word before. And that was during when Jesus came out of the waters of baptism. And that was the time where Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry. And what an affirming, approving word from his father to motivate him, to get him to get him to do his job because those three years of ministry were not going to be easy. And then when Jesus said this, when when God the Father said this about his son Jesus, again he said, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
Now Jesus is about ready to go to the cross. We're in Matthew far enough now that we are about ready to start that final walk. And so whether this was another momentum, whether this kind of approval from the Father was what Jesus needed, but also those words, listen to him. How important it is to listen to him. And how do we, as much as we love to sing, Andy walks with me and he talks with me. If he had an audible voice, it, it seems like we would be able to listen so much clearer. But yet, think about it. We have his word, his words written in 66 books. And when God says, when God the Father says, listen to him, he is saying, keep your Bibles open. Keep studying. Know that this is his word talking to you. So it's just as as right there as if you could audibly hear him with your ears. The Holy Spirit will turn your spiritual ears on and you can hear him speak to you. So listening to him is possible. All you have to do is open this book. Every word is true. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground. They were terrified, but Jesus came and touched them and said, get up, don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now I put a star, I underlined, I did everything that I could so that when my Bible opens to Matthew 17, that I see that phrase. Because so often, we think that we need, oh, we need Jesus, but we need this, and we need this bank account, and we need these people in our lives, and we need these experiences yet. And But this verse, verse 8, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. I love that song, he's all I need, he's all I need. Jesus is all I need. But I'm going to say this again, I know I've said it before, but you really don't know he's all you need until he's all you've got. And sometimes things have to get to the point where you have no one or nothing. You are desperate enough to know that he is all you need. But believe it or not, that is a great revelation when you realize that. I can remember as clear as I'm sitting here today, I can remember when that happened to me. And it wasn't during a good time either. It was during the most awful time. But I realized during that time, because I could go to no one else, and I found he was sufficient. He was all I needed. So I think there is something to that when they saw no one except Jesus. I think that is so comforting for us. Because what does Jesus say? I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So you never have to think about he's not there. And sometimes when you don't feel there's anyone or anything that can help you, well, then you know you go to the one, of course, that he is sufficient. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, now don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. When you first read that, don't you think, well, why? How, how could they keep something like that quiet? Well, can you imagine coming down from the mountain and, and you see um, people and you want to say, guess who I just saw? I just saw Moses. Oh, guess who I just saw? I just saw Elijah. Can you imagine people would think you had a screw loose? I mean, they, they, Jesus knew that if they started saying this, 
No one would understand. No one would be able to possibly relate this extraordinary experience. Until he was raised from the dead and he made appearances to more people in his new, in his heavenly body. But at this point, I think it was an experience that he knew Peter, James, and John were explicitly needing to have. The disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now that whole passage from verse 11 to 13, I know that's very hard to understand, and I wish I could just explain it to you in a very simple way, but Elijah was known as the greatest prophet. Now Moses was known as the lawgiver, And so why were those particular two on the Mount of Transfiguration? Because Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophet. But Elijah, I think if we, like I said, I, I can't totally explain what this means, but Elijah and John the Baptist, I think you're talking about their behavior, not so much their name or their their person, but what they represented, what their lives were like. So I, I compared them to show how much Elijah and John the Baptist were, were alike. Both of them, both of them totally committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. Both of them rebuked sin. Both of them called sinners to repentance. Both of them attracted the multitudes. And now get this, and both of them had the attention and the fury of the king of the day and their partner. Elijah had King Ahab and Jezebel John the Baptist had Herod and Herodias. So there were many similarities, but I think here, I think Jesus is saying that Elijah, John the Baptist, they were people, they were men that totally gave it themselves for the cause of Christ. And so don't get so bogged down Don't get so bogged down in trying to understand explicitly about, because I look at Elijah, and he was mentioned, of course, in the book of Kings. And then he was referred to here in Matthew. He is referred to in James. I think someone like Elijah and it, what he, what the way he lived his life and the way he committed his life and the way he gave his life I think this is, this is the longing that Jesus has for all of us, that we become so, that, that he is so our one and only, that he is our main focus, that he is the, the pinnacle of our life, that he is our life. He's not just a part of our life, but, he, but everything that we do and say and the way we act, that, that just like these men, 
that they had Jesus, he was the top of their life. He was what they lived for. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. His seizures and his suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. I think you're starting to see a little bit of frustration. Jesus knows he's running out of earthly time here. He's seeing them still not live by faith in him. They're still, they're still saying they're, yeah, but. Remember, I, I, we had this a couple weeks ago. Look what Peter was able to do when his eyes were fixed on Jesus. I think we're going to see this a little bit more, and Jesus is going to expound on it a little bit more here, but look what happened to Peter when he started looking at the things of this world, when he started looking at the wind, when he started letting his human emotions take over. He started to sink. And I think Jesus here, he's saying, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? He said, bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive him out? And I'm sure that they asked that question because a few chapters back, you know that when they were sent out, Jesus gave them the authority. He gave them the authority to be able to do these miracles. And so their question was, how come we couldn't? Look at Jesus' answer. He replied, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. I read that passage over and over again because to me, it, it almost said, well, you tell me that I don't have little faith. That's my problem because you have so little faith. But then you go on to say, I'll tell you the truth, that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. So to me, I'm thinking, Jesus, you're contradicting yourself. You're telling me that the reason I am not strong and courageous and can fulfill what you've called me to do because I have such little faith. But then you tell me in the same sentence practically that if I have just the faith of a mustard seed, I can say to the mountain, move, and it will move. I had to sit and really ponder on that one. And it was one of those jump out of my chair when the Holy Spirit revealed to me. And it isn't the amount of faith. It is the kind of faith. So when he said, because you have so little faith, I think what he was saying, we all have faith of some type. What do you trust in? And like I said before, sometimes it's a person in your life you can't possibly live without. Maybe you put your faith in your bank account. Maybe, I mean, whatever. You can think about that personally. Everybody's maybe got a different answer. But if you, you have to take a look and say, where, where do I put my trust? 
And here I think sometimes we can put more faith in ourselves. Even though we might say we have faith in the Lord Jesus, I know for me personally, I know until I really had my voice taken away from me, I didn't realize how much I put my faith in my voice. Oh, I knew I was singing about Jesus. I knew that my mission, my motive of my heart was true. But yet, I thought I can't possibly work without my voice. I need my singing voice. And when my singing voice was taken away, there's where the test comes. I think the Lord wanted to show me that I don't need your singing voice. And I just want you to see how much faith you put in that, thinking that I can't use you unless you are singing. And I really had to come to grips with that, and I think we all have something that we put our faith in, thinking that that is what's going to help us when he is all we need, and he is going to do whatever it takes to get us till we know that. And that's the faith he's talking about. If you have that kind of faith, even if it's just a mustard seed of that kind of faith, but your faith is in me instead of something of this world or of yourself, I think, in all sincerity, I think they had these disciples had more faith in themselves, thinking, "Well, I'm one of the twelve. We've been, I've been, we've been given the authority. Um, we got this. We got a handle on it. No problem." And I think it's called spiritual cockiness. Don't you find that the closer you get in your walk with Jesus? The more you get to know his word, it seems like the more mature, spiritually mature you're getting, the more you find how you need to cling and you can't do it without him. In fact, just the opposite of what spiritual cockiness is. The more I get to know him, the more I find I need him. There is no place for spiritual cockiness because there is never a time where we think we've got this. I can handle it. And I think there was a little bit of this. They couldn't do it because they were, they were kind of getting a little complacent. They were getting a little too comfortable in who they were. And they lost that clinging. They took and put their faith in themselves and instead of their faith in the Lord Jesus because it was only he that gave them the authority to do it. So whenever self just kind of gets its sneaky way in there, he said, if you have just a mustard seed of faith in me, you can say to the mountain, move from here, and it will move. And what an illustration he uses because if you've ever been in the Alps or the Cascades or Whatever. If you look at these majestic mountains and you can't possibly imagine saying to one of those mountains, no, I don't like you right over there. Why don't you move over to this? Well, we know how impossible that sounds like. But there are some times in our lives I think we think it's impossible. I remember last week I was looking at a, a lady in one of the classes and I know that she just lost her husband a couple weeks ago. And now, you know, the family's gone home and the reality of life is setting in. And we were talking about this and she was just staring at me and I couldn't help but use her as an example. 
And I looked at her and I said, I know right now you think that this is an immovable mountain, that you can't possibly live without him. That when you look at loneliness straight in the face, you can't possibly do it. That is your mountain right now. And it doesn't possibly look like it can move. There's nothing good that can come from this. There's no light at the end of this tunnel. And Jesus is saying it to her. He's saying it to you in your impossible situation. He is saying, if you just have a mustard seed of faith in me, because nothing is impossible. I have a will that's perfect for you. I've got a plan that's ongoing, that's perfect in you. I will give you the strength and the courage. What he said to Joshua and Joshua 1, he's saying to you and me today, if you just have a mustard seed of belief that I am who I am and I can do what I say and I promise and I fulfill my promises, if you have a mustard seed of faith and you go to my words and you hear me tell them to you, you will be able to make it through your mountain. You can move your mountain because when he said nothing will be impossible for you, you can take a look at what you think you'll never be able to get through and he will see to it that you do. There's the difference. So when you look at that one verse, why can't we drive? Why can't we do this? Because maybe your faith is too much into yourself or something, someone or something else. Because it isn't the amount of faith. It's the kind of faith. We always have to take a look and say, where is my faith? In whom is my faith? In. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Now, I know I say this repeatedly, but I want you to see that Jesus never talks about his death without talking about his resurrection. But we have selective hearing sometimes. All the disciples heard was that he was going to die. It's like all of a sudden they plugged their ears because he went right on and said, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life, but they didn't hear that. So often, I think we get stumped with, with life. We don't remember the hope that he gave us. We forget what a day that will be when Jesus we will see. We forget that we are, when we are so caught up with the loss, we're so, we're so looking at, but I can, and I, and I don't want you to leave me. And, and when we're so consumed with the loss, we can't see what's ahead. Because it looks, it, it says right there, and the disciples were filled with grief. You think they should have been rather excited or asked some more questions or how's that going to be? You're going to die and you're going to be raised again. Can you explain that some more? But no, all they heard was that he was going to die. And I wonder sometimes how we get so caught up in, again, our now and how our happy and comfort, 
happiness and comfort. I, we, we get so, we so want everything right now to be just the way we want it. But Jesus will never do or allow something in our life without giving us hope for what's ahead. Either that way he will walk us through it or even, that's why David said, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's our ultimate fear. That's the ultimate unknown. But he said, even in that experience, you don't even have to fear that. Why? Because not only is Jesus with you, but you and I have been given the hope of revelation. We've been given the hope to hang on to what is to come. We can't just hear what's wrong now, but we've got to know that we have a future that's been bought and paid for, and we can look forward to that day. That's why that song is so perfect. What a day that will be when Jesus we will see, when we look upon his face, the one who saved us by his grace. He'll take us by the hand and lead us through the promised land. Another song that comes to my mind is, it will be worth it all. And if we can keep that in our mind, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus and he's promised that we will see him. The song says, all trials will soon be gone when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. And you know, that's scripture because it, Paul says that when we see Jesus, when we get to glory, we're going to look back at our life that we thought was so, well, we got so, so shook. Everything was so big. He said, you know what? We're going to get to glory and we're going to say, is that all I had to go through to get all this? So yes, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. All trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face. All, all sorrow will erase. So let's bravely run this race till we see Christ. I think the disciples teach us something here. Don't get so caught up and so grounded into the now when we have got a future, when we have got something to look forward to that he has promised. We're living in the prophecy of what he promised. Are we going to believe it? And are we going to hang on to that? Or are we going to let the things of life just take us down the wrong path of discouragement, despair, give up, hopelessness? Okay, verse 24, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and said, doesn't your, te doesn't your teacher have to pay the temple tax? Peter said, yes, he does. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? Do they collect from their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. And that was a correct answer because the kings of the day, they didn't have to pay the temple tax and neither did their relatives, neither did their sons. That was, that was the rule. 
that kings and their families were exempt from paying the temple tax. Now, what Jesus wanted Peter to stretch out and see is who owns that temple? Who is who's who who is that temple? And that's God the Father. And who is Jesus? He is God's son. So what Jesus was saying, my father owns this temple. I'm the father's son. I don't. I don't have to pay. But he also knows that if he tries to say that to these people, he knows it just isn't going to be worth it. It isn't. They're not going to understand it. And so he says, but so that they may not be offended. So in other words, he's saying, you know what? It's not necessary because I know who I am and I know who my father is. But because they don't, and I don't want to cause a mess here. I don't want to offend anybody. And I think that reminds us of our last few lessons about standing on the non-negotiables, but some of the negotiable things, you just kind of let it go a little bit. Because some of these these non-negotiable things are just man-made rules. But if it's important to them, even though it's not as important to you, you don't want to be offensive. You don't want to be a stumbling block. You don't want to turn them off. Now remember, there is a huge difference between the negotiable and the non-negotiable. The non-negotiables is what the Bible says. It's what God says, and we should never sway from that. That's why it's so important that we do know the difference between the two. But here was a there was a negotiable thing about the temple tax, and even though Jesus knew rightfully he didn't have to pay it, but not to offend them, he said to Peter, go to the lake and throw your line. Take the first fish you catch. Open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. You think about that. There you see God in his Fullness. You see Jesus as the Son of God. He is God, but you also see him as fully man. Because as God, he's able to take this fish, the first fish, and have Peter open the fish's mouth, and there is a coin worth four drachma, which is just enough to pay Jesus and Peter's tax. That's a miracle that only God can do. But then you see Jesus as a human being because he's he is saying, but these are the things we have to do as humans. Give to God the things that are God and give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But I just couldn't help but see that right here with Jesus, you could, he is both God and man. And he used them both right here. So there's a lot to this chapter. There's a lot to think about. But I think if I was to kind of sum it all up and it's kind of, I think we have to be mindful that the Lord causes experiences 
and different situations to happen in our life. Not to make us miserable, but he knows what we need to grow us up and mature us so that we are ready to serve him, that we are ready to be strong and courageous for his name, that we realize there is a difference in faith. And it's not how much faith we have, it's the kind of faith. Who or what, even if it's yourself, are you trusting more than putting your trust in him? Because you put your trust in him, you can get through your impossible. And also to keep looking ahead. Do you realize that going forward is the, always the direction? Paul himself says, one thing I don't do is look back. Look back never gets me anywhere. In fact, when I look back, I think of all the things that I did. Looking forward is always the direction. He says, I press on. I press forward toward the goal. You always have to move forward to get to the goal. And the goal is to see Jesus. And what a day that will be. But in the meantime, until then, because of what he has done for us, may our hearts go on singing. May with joy we carry on. Until the day our eyes behold that city, See, he wants us not to just look forward to that day, but he wants us waking up every morning knowing he's there, knowing he's sufficient, knowing he's the one that walks with us through the impossible, and he makes life worth the living. Yeah, it's a great lesson. Have a great week, everybody.